Philosophy is a podcast that explores the link between success and failure with me, Sam Emery, the host, talking to guests from all around the world, all walks of life, and we look at the challenges we face every day, the resilience required to overcome them, and ultimately, the impact these experiences have on our life and the greater community. My guest for this episode is the founding partner of MH Carnegie, seasoned investment banker and venture capitalist, Mark Carnegie. I first met Mark uh, back in December uh, 2019, and we were talking about podcasts and how they can be a vehicle to help spread positive messages, whether it's for commercial purposes or personal reasons, or as I explained to Mark, even for simply shits and giggles. And uh, after that, Mark uh, and uh, brought my expertise to, to the table, if, you, if I could call it expertise, and we launched a podcast series called A Search for Safety. It's a podcast where Mark wanted to explore what it meant to be safe and why we as humans are wired to mitigate hazards and conditions leading to physical, psychological or material harm. Unfortunately, it was cut short because, uh, as we all know, the world stopped thanks to uh, COVID-19. And I think I was listening back to the, uh, the episodes recently, and I think the first episode, Mark actually does mention the fact that uh, there were, you know, there's lots of things we're facing at the moment. We've got a sort of a, a looming recession that we were talking about at the end of 2019, and Mark even mentioned that there were health scares happening out of China that, that some people might be worried about. I'm not sure whether he had a crystal ball or, or what he had at, at his uh, fingertips, but what we eventually found out was that the world was going to stop turning and, and we have been faced with a world that not many people who are alive today uh, have ever experienced. Mark's business, MH Carnegie & Co, is described as an alternative asset manager, managing funds in excess of $900 million across eight platforms and it was established back in 2011. I'm pretty excited to hear what Mark's philosophy is. Mark Carnegie, lovely to chat with you again. It's been quite a while since we spoke back in February. It has indeed, Sam, and as you say, the world has changed since then. At that stage, everybody felt completely comfortable and all these things looked a bit like you were being threatened with a boogeyman and then which I thought was not going to take off, which was um, the coronavirus ended up proving me wrong and at the same time proving the need for this podcast and also the search for safety right, which is, hey, it's the things you don't see coming that get you. (laughs) And, you know, we'd had SARS and MERS and a whole lot of these things before and I'd gone and stocked up on Tamiflu because I was worried about a pandemic as being something that really, really could change the world. And then I, you know, have to say, having had three false starts on that, I was way less concerned about this one than I should have been at the beginning. And um, here we are today. Now, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your extremely busy life, Mark, to have a chat with us about this. And and I believe you're over in England, you're in London at the moment, and it was just announced today that they've gone back into lockdown. Yeah, I mean, I think we could have a whole podcast talking about coronavirus and people's (laughs) response, et cetera, to it. But I mean, I feel like the part that Britain's done better than anyone else is basically green light this vaccine. And and green light it not like the Russians and the Chinese did on sort of a have a hunch better bunch but mm. proper 
quick acceleration once the evidence in that this is, I mean, absolutely extraordinary in terms of how they've been able to find a, a, a vaccine with this amount of efficacy. So that's the good. The bad is that it has been an absolute rabble over here trying to figure out exactly what um, the policies around coronavirus is going to be in England. Um, and today is yet another example of that. Um, it really has been the sort of grumble and get by approach. And it's clearly been one of the worst. I mean, even a place like Sweden, where they had a coherent strategy and it's gone wrong, um, you know, they bet the wrong way. And I have to say, I thought their bet was a really interesting one to take. Because Sweden stayed they open, at least, they? Yeah, and I mean, they... Exactly. And then, you know, it, it was intellectually coherent, but ultimately the wrong thing to do. Now, I supported it for its intellectual coherence in the same way as I supported um, Arden's sort of go fast, go, you know, go hard, go early strategy, um, despite some reservations. So these were two completely different approaches, both of which were worth taking, whereas I think the grumble and get by strategy was not the right one. But where I'm, you know probably three months away from the bulk of the people who could end up being sick um, in England having the vaccine. And quite rightly, the government saying, OK, well, we having not been as cautious we, as we should have been at the beginning with this, mm. we're going to, in the abundance of caution, slow things down while we can get the bulk of the people 70 years old and above or pre-existing conditions vaccinated. So... But that's more about safety and that than it is about philosophy. So we're <laughs> yes. probably going to well, abandon on, in the editing room 15 minutes of this conversation, Sam, <laughs> as so often. Well, I think you often said that to me, Mark, and more often than not, I left a lot of it in. Uh, but <laughs> it is, I mean, it's incredible to think how differently the world has approached this COVID. And, and uh, I guess I wanted to know, as I got to know you in the, in the short while that we sort of worked together on that podcast back in uh, late last year and early this year, I, I learned that you were most definitely uh, an outdoors person. You loved going trekking. You loved being out and about. And how did the lockdown and how did this experience affect you personally? How did you deal with the lockdown? So I've had three chapters in the lockdown. I had um, New Zealand chapter, which was hard and then really miraculous reopen and you could have gone on as though nothing had happened in New Zealand. So there were two parts, which is how did I feel about a hard landing and eight weeks in a house in New Zealand? And the truth was to slow the world down to that extent for eight weeks was absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. It completely, you know, meant so many things had changed from habits that I'd had historically. And after a period of going what I called full Hemingway um, and, you know, starting martini drinking at um, 11 o'clock in the morning, um, you know, there was a rhythm to that that I... Exactly. So um, I really, really enjoyed um, that experience of slowing down, considering life and recognising that, you know, fewer trips, and deeper, fewer relationships and deeper um, was going to be a better approach to my world rather than just getting on a plane at 
the flick of a switch. So I've got to say the first eight weeks, which was the lockdown eight weeks, I found really, really interesting. Um, and a sort of psychological boot camp that I wouldn't have expected. Uh, and probably and one that you wouldn't ever have put yourself in ever. Absolutely. No way. Hmm. Um, so I had all sorts of really, really interesting rabbit holes that I ran down. But ultimately, that was a very productive experience, even though one that I would never have self-imposed, as you say. Hmm. And then there was New Zealand sort of reopened um, and you're allowed to do whatever you want to do in New Zealand. And But there isn't any sort of going in and going out. And New Zealand, we'd moved to the country and it was really, really nice. The problem was my I could not see my children during that time and there were a series of pretty serious personal um, crises around that that made things extraordinarily hard. Oh, so for myself, in myself, it was fine, but ability to get to see the children and, in fact, my ailing father in Melbourne, that put a big chunk of psychological pressure on me. And that part of it was really, really hard. So just as New Zealand was opening up, the whole you know shadow of the second lockdown in Melbourne, what the hell's going on, talks about opening a trans-Tasman bottle or abandoned so that was a difficult period so mark i gave a brief description earlier of uh yeah. of what mh carnegie is but in your words uh explain what it is that your business does so i'm basically a broken market investor so as one of my partners described it we're the guys running into the burning house when everybody else is running out so whether it's Indonesia after the fall of Sahato or medical device investing in America after Obamacare or pubs after they brought in the smoking ban or media in Australia in 1990 when a whole lot of crazies had um, borrowed you know, half of the national debt of the world and bought media assets. That's really what I am, a sort of counter-cyclical investor. Um, and I've done that. Um, for the best part of my whole career uh, in all sorts of different things, be it real estate or mining or um, media or financial services. Uh, so it's not more complicated than that, which is I invest in things that other people think aren't particularly attractive to invest in. And instead of investing on the stock market, um, I invest in private companies overwhelmingly. So things that aren't listed on the stock market. And you know, one of the examples of things that I'm not investing in but looking at investing in at the moment is crypto, you know, Bitcoin and stuff like that. So right. stuff that other people think you've got to be crazy. I mean, where has crypto gone? Because, I mean, Bitcoin was obviously the extremely well-known one that went gangbusters there was it that was about what two years ago now and but it seems to the hype around it unless you're obviously involved in it the hype around it has sort of dropped off a little bit so yeah no mate it's coming back somehow for whatever reason australia it's it's flying again now like i've been thumb sucking and done nothing on it for the best part of 12 months and certainly nine months since they started doing the money printing when 
coronavirus came, um, it's become front and centre for a whole series of people. And then recently, over the last three months, as people have suddenly realised where the hell are we going to hide from an investment point of view and the markets have stabilised, cryptos come roaring back in the US. And a whole series of people who said, it's a bubble, it's absolute rubbish, it's turned around on us. So, you know, Ray Dalio, Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, big, big international investing names, some of whom were deeply sceptical about it at the beginning, have turned around and said, actually, you need 1% or 2% of your portfolio in crypto as a diversification strategy. So let's see whether you know the pro case is, is right or the anti case. But it's gone from like 6000 bucks Bitcoin to 18500 to 19500 during this time. So it's been flying. It's so incredible. I mean, it's it's the digital gold, but I yeah. there was always this sort of worry of, for me anyway, like when you look at fin- uh, currency and you look at how we, uh, you know, you look at the, the way that China owns so many countries now because of the debt yeah. and all these sorts of things, you just wonder how safe it is to have monetary value in our currency valued in something that's digital. I agree, but that's the whole issue, which is, to me, after the money printing, I I do something where people think, oh, you're absolutely crazy. I do genuinely think you've got to decide not should you have something. You've got to figure, figure out at the moment as part of your portfolio, do you want um, digital gold or do you want real real gold do you want digital press precious metals meaning ethereum and ripple and stuff like that or do you want physical uh precious metal because your portfolio just on a portfolio construction basis is going to be in a huge amount of trouble if you're not at least considering those questions Mm -hmm. but as you say most people are just sitting there and saying oh well the stock market's going up i'm going to be fine on that but Anyway, again, this isn't the stock market podcast. It's about failure. Um, it is. It is. And, but it's, it's fascinating to know, as you said, that you, you know, you, as you said, you run into the fire while everyone's running out. Yeah. And and I guess you yeah. know, considering you stopped yourself there and you brought up failure, it's it's definitely time yeah. now to, to ask. You know, this this uh, podcast explores the link between success and failure through one's yeah. life. I mean, is failure something that you often thought about when you were growing up? So the way that I think is best to answer your question, if it's me, is there's two different parts. And you know that I tend to sort of start at 30,000 feet and then go down as opposed to start... <laughs> With a little bit of turbulence at, in between, at, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ground level and go up. So I think when I was thinking about your podcast, you can't get past um, Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. Yeah? That, for me, encapsulates the point about treat those two imposters, success and failure, just the same, yeah? And equanimity in the face of both success and failure and recognising how much of it's luck and how little of it's skill in both of those cases Mm. is really, really important. Mm. So for all the people, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't uh, read Rudyard Kipling's poem, um, I think you want to start there. Now, there are a strong minority of people who would say to you that it's absolute rubbish. So I've seen in the same way as some movies where broadly everyone loves them, but there's a vociferous minority that hate them. 
another one like that is Love Actually, yeah, where the world divides. <laughs> so they were going there, yeah. <laughs> okay, but they but Rudyard Kipling's poem divides the world, but it certainly as a place to start to talk about failure and how you need to develop a philosophy. I think it's a really good place to start. So tips for people listening to this, if you haven't read it, read it. And if you haven't, R-U-D, Y-A-R-D-K-I-P-L-I-N-G. He he also did The Jungle Book and a whole series of other things. And he had his children all die in the First World War, you know, get killed in the First World War. uh, I mean, if there was anybody who really confronted all of that. Now, I think in the sort of woke world, because he was a champion of empire, I'm sure there's a whole lot of backlash that's going to come as a result of me quoting Kipling. But nevertheless, the issue is far more how his poem divides people than it is any sort of colonial legacy associated with Kipling, because he was an extraordinary guy. So that that's block number one for people in terms of thinking about it. And then if I move to a different place, for me, all the psychologists have got really interesting things to say about response to failure. So they talk about resilience as a key figure to be developed in human beings because failure is just inherent in everybody's life. And the focus of the West is very much on success, whereas my view is that actually the psychologists have got it right in this particular area, which is, you need to focus on resilience. You will have measures of success in your life. You're going to have measures of failure in your life. And you have to focus on how do you develop resilience and a learning mentality from success and failure in order to make your life work. And it's easy to say that, but ultimately that's the key is if you're going to develop a philosophy, a philosophy is about how to give you the best ability to be resilient in the face of failure and not get overconfident in the face of success. So would you say that you think that that failure is a, is a negative word or, or you don't really no, consider it? it's an inevitable word. I think it's interesting because if we move from 30,000 feet further down, there's some really good mathematics going around at, at the moment that comes off the back of um, Nick Caleb's work that isn't his. It's um, a guy called Ole Peters who does this work on ergodic um, economics where he says, look, there's every bit of all the world a difference between constrained failure that keeps you alive and a complete and utter wipeout. And people seem to just say, well, anything that loses money is a failure. But it's not like that. It's far more, in my view, failures about trying to avoid catastrophe. And you need to embed limited failure in your life in order to avoid catastrophe. Surely failure just exceeds, you know, far surpasses anything monetary, doesn't it? Because those sorts of Absolutely. things all, or are, are obviously material and, and, and it, failure is, is more, for me anyway, I, I approach it in a, a personal and, and physiological sense 
and psychological sense that that at the end of the day, as COVID has certainly shown us, you know, and you mentioned it, you know, when you were in New Zealand and we certainly noticed it here when when we were forced to stop, all of a sudden we sat around the dinner table again and we were talking and we were out with the kids, you know, playing every morning and every afternoon and, and all those little things bounced back that were just so important that the stresses of all the other things that we strive for and stress about every day sort of went away. They dissipated. And and for all of a sudden the, the, the failures and, and the, the things that were driving me were what is life really about? I'm, I'm ready to pack up and go to the bush. I'm ready to just focus, you know, on, on the kids and, and the family and those connections. Ultimately, the biggest failure of my life was the failure of my marriage, no doubt, yeah? And so people don't want to talk about the fact that that is such a really important thing because internalizing the fact that it was a failure, you gave your word in front of God and then you broke it, was and is just an unimaginable thing. And the consequences for your children and your partner and yourself are enormous. So this is what I said to you before we started, which is that if I look at fail and philosophy, then I still don't know and don't have any approach to thinking about finding a partner, having children, and that fails. So my philosophy still fails to incorporate some catastrophe like that, where you really had some capacity and some ability to engage in it. Yeah, It's not like some external catastrophe. It was something that you signed up to and you failed to do. And and the consequences live with us, you know, more than a decade after my divorce. And separately to that, if I think about my early failures, they were just coming to terms with recognizing that my athletic career was only ever going to end up being mediocre and that despite, you know, getting in a university rowing team and winning an Australian University Championship, any dreams that I had of state selection or national selection or going to the Olympics were just an absolute fantasy. And so I'd failed in my ambitions, and maybe they were at that stage fantasies, earlier than anything to do with business. And then there were a series of those. I got to university and realized I'd never be a success as a serious research scientist. I realized that a sort of week or two after I started at university. And so a wholesale change of career took three or four years to try and figure out where I was going, given that what I'd always set my heart on, which was to be a research scientist, I just wasn't going to be a good enough one to actually have any impact. It's intertwined in everything we do. I mean, all you have to do is essentially wake up and open your eyes and and there's any opportunity there to fail. But I think one of the things we mentioned earlier when we were discussing uh, what this was all about, this this podcast about philosophy, we both sort of, you, you, you indicated that failure and success is intertwined. And, yeah. you know, hearing about that, even with, with the marriage failure, with the sporting failures, you know, I, I could say the same things for myself as well. You know, I've, I thought I was going to have a career in music and I thought I was going to have a career in these things and then you suddenly realise that maybe you're not that good at it, even though you love it, you know, and you stumble on that and you grow from that and, and surely it's a failure and it continues to be a failure if you then walk away from it and don't 
stay involved and don't keep trying. But clearly, I mean, you're, you're in England to support your children. You're in, you know, you've yep. continued to grow a business, which, you know, I want to talk about soon in terms of impact investment and, and bringing capitalism back to people. And, and you have all these great ambitions. So clearly you didn't stop. No, and I think the, and I was talking, I've talked to two really, really serious people, sort of orders of magnitude more prominent than me. And one of them was mentioning even in Obama's autobiography, which I haven't read, that Obama feels like huge slabs of his presidency was a failure. Here he is, the first black president, um, you know, transformed what people thought they could do as black Americans. Absolutely extraordinary man in every way. Um, a sort of independent success, and yet what he internalizes is elements of failure as well. So I don't think it's unique to you and me, Sam, that um, we're internalizing part of it. And I spoke to these two people, both of whom are saying, well, look, in the, the predominant thing that I set my heart on, I have failed. I have spent a decade to two decades trying to achieve this, and I just have to internalize and metabolize the fact that I'm going to fail at that. And yet, I look at those people and say their capacity to put their shoulder to the common wheel and act in the common good is going to last for 100 years. People are still going to be able to sit back and say, that guy did amazing things. Yes, his record might be not unblemished. There's going to be elements where people are going to say he had fights with people or he, he didn't achieve this or that. But overall, he succeeded. And so the difference between what somebody feels, which is, oh, my God, I failed, and what they look to them from the outside, which is, hey, this guy was a huge success, is really, really hard to get to grips with. I think what you feel internally to keep you going, failure and fear of failure, as Diana Freeland said about people in New York, that's your fuel, the fact that you're like oh my god i failed i've got so much to do that's the fuel that keeps you going it certainly does i mean that's what kicked me into gear to finally get this podcast going that i'd been talking about uh for for three or so years you know I, yeah. i'm facing uh you know possibly not having a job uh within the next week or two and and you know for budgetary reasons, all sorts of different things. And, and it, it sort of, I just went, shit, you know, I've got skills. I've, I've met people. I have contacts. You know, let's make something yep. happen. Let's get out there and just start talking. And I stopped thinking about it so much and I just started putting things out there. No, and I'm so glad you have, you know, not just for this podcast, but I see so many people at the moment. There's a great thing called the Burning Platform Memo that was written by the CEO of Nokia where you said, look, the two choices are stay on the burning platform of the technology we've got or jump 150 feet into the cold North Sea water, right? It's not pleasant, the choice, and the chances of both are bad. But the only way home here is to jump in the water. It's terrifying, but that's what we're going to have to do. And I look at a whole series of other people in legacy media who are absolutely strapped into the burning platform and not thinking about how they're going to internalise and, and come to grips with a changed environment. And it's not just media. It's so many things are going to change as a result of the fact that 10% of GDP has gone online during this pandemic. And, yeah, there's some small lottery ticket winners, but overwhelmingly for small business, it's just devastating. 
And that is a nice segue, thank you, Mark, for, for bringing that up because one of the key things that we spoke about in, in the podcast that uh, you and I did together, Search for Safety, we, we spoke about capitalism and, and you opened my eyes to a history of capitalism that I had no idea about, which possibly speaks to the fact that I need to read more, but also because capitalism uh, was actually for the people. It was something that had a, a social compass, a moral compass, and that was uh, designed to share the wealth. And then over time, the wealth became so great, it bastardized itself, to put it simply, and, and profit took over and greed, and, and capitalism became what we know it is today. So how do you see the failure in capitalism and, and, and being an investor and being the person you are running into the fire of, of investment, do you think capitalism can actually come back to what it was originally? I'm going to be pessimistic for a second, Sam. I am so worried about what I started out trying to do in a good sense, which was this impact investing and for purpose investing is turning in because of the nature of what's going on at the moment into nothing more than the shallow virtue signal. So, the thing that scared me, having spent you know the best part of a decade trying to figure out how to inject what was the original nature of a, the grant of a corporate license being only for the public benefit back into society. And I've seen a whole series of people join that campaign of mine over time. But what I'm terrified is the people who've joined are doing it for virtue signaling. They're not actually doing it with enough of a sophisticated understanding of what's going to work. And in fact, a, a series of people I would have thought I would have absolutely no common cause with are coming around to the view that what we're going to have to do to get ourselves out of this mess is more complicated than people understand at the moment, absolutely at the same time as what wins in politics is slogans and something simple. So I, I feel like at one level on the climate, business has done an extraordinary job of stepping forward in the middle of a vacuum and saying, we really don't care. We're going to make our climate commitments independent of what the government of the day says they're going to do about it. We just can't afford to wait. So I feel like the one clear winner out of what I call the impact investing is the fact that government, whilst in, you know, in Australia and America, left the field corporations have stepped forward and said, nah, sorry, we don't we don't want to see your messing around. We're going to lean in and make this work and we're going to come up with a solution. And if you go back to something as simple, both as simple and as complicated as the hole in the ozone layer, it was ultimately DuPont technology and the adoption of that technology that found a way to deal with what was potentially at least as large a climate um, crisis as this one. And I believe in the same way as the vaccine ended up being widely more successful than I ever thought it it was, a series of innovations in technology are going to be able to bring the climate goals into line. I do think this sort of 2050, 2060 target has now become default, and I do think we're going to be able to achieve it. So I feel optimistic about, um, and sorry, this is a long rant, but I feel like optimistic about corporations' ability to actually be the leaders in that area, whereas on the inequality lever, which was the thing that I've been worried about for the best part of a decade, 
I see absolutely no sign that the nature of capitalism in 2020 to 2050 is going to, unaided, turn around and distribute the benefits of capitalism more equally. That just seems to me to be a one-way ticket to more and more inequality. You're looking at the the Amazons and and the Facebooks and these huge digital businesses uh, that have just gone from being yeah, and you've had wealthy to being extremely even like unbelievably wealthy. Where you yeah, and even and that kind of wealth. Yeah, and then on the other side, you've basically had a neutron bomb or some sort of Passchendaele of Verdun of small business throughout this and. So many of those businesses are going to be structurally unviable coming out of this. So the mental health, family, all the other consequences as a result of all of those businesses is just going to be unimaginably horrible. If, if that's the case, if, if you are thinking that it's, it's, it's not going to become that, that shared wealth model, what were you hearing, you know, at, at your level of, of the corporate world and, and the people who, the circles that you are in? I mean, what were you hearing? I mean, if COVID, if a vaccine hadn't been found, if, if we don't see the rest of the world getting to a point of similar to where Australia and New Zealand now are, where they're practically back to some form of normality, I mean, what were they, what was the plan forward if, if the world didn't ever get back to some to an open world. I mean, what were they going to do with the wealth? What, what, so what was Australia maintain? and New Zealand going to do with if there was no vaccine found either, which is we're Australia, Australia and New Zealand are not viable as countries on their own, independent of um, trade with the rest of the world. Not, yeah, There's not enough people, just, really, to, to there's, Well, it's just not... I mean, the whole question about you're going to still have a trading network, you're still going to have a whole series of things, but more important in which is our, you know, our terms of trade and New Zealand's terms of trade end up being, I think, okay as a result of the mineral resources, but minerals just take no people. So there was no employment, there was no structure. And whether it was tertiary education that is kept afloat by foreign students or tourism, you know, the, the world of a decade rather than a year without international connections we would have on a relative basis been okay, but we would have been transformed by it nevertheless. And I think the other approach, which is, well, you know, a whole series of people who were going to die at some stage have ended up dying, um, was a human flourishing catastrophe. But you could have seen how that wave got through. It was unimaginable like a war or like the the flu epidemic of 1918, but people found some way through it. So there would have been a huge human cost, but eventually economic recovery because the trading system, the world trading system would have worked in one way. But the thing is that even that, which is a sort of pessimistic view, isn't sufficiently pessimistic because the China... America trade war has gone from something that was sort of saber rattling to something that looks really, really serious and entrenched now. So you're right. What would have happened without the vaccine is imponderable, but it's certainly not fun. No, nothing fun about it. That is for sure. 
it's been so fascinating to hear your philosophy around resilience and and the requirement of catastrophe in order to to uh, make a path for oneself. I guess is how I, I understood that. Obviously, the world's never really going to return back to what it was. I mean, I don't know enough about when we got through the Spanish flu to then say, oh, well, then life returned to normal, but we certainly came to the life as we know it. What is your view of the world? Mortality events on this, if you actually look at how many people died in 2020 compared to other mortality events, even there's a flu epidemic in the 50s or the 60s that's the same sort of mortality event as this one. Not trivial, but not on the same level as 1918, yeah? Uh so I don't think as a mortality event, it's going to end up registering. But as a psychological event, it's going to be absolutely enormous for the impact it's had on these issues we were talking about, which is um, economic inequality. It's clearly going to have a massive socio-political um, effect coming out of the economic impact of this, which hasn't even started at the moment. You know, we've essentially, as a world, become massively underemployed and used um, a credit card provided by the central banks of the world to be able to continue to make the economy work. But there is a day of reckoning coming, absolutely no doubt, yeah, when we don't know. And so don't be thinking it's over when everyone's got the vaccine because that is the healthcare systems event that has adjusted. It's not the economic event. And more importantly, even than the economic event is, the world has changed. It is clear to anyone in Australia who's reading it at the moment that a sort of blind support of a unreliable ally like America against China um, when China is moving from being a sort of neutral to an active participant in world geopolitics is not a strategy that's, that's successful, yeah? So Australia has to decide what it's going to do in the coming Cold War too. And that, to me, is the existential question. We're just not even beginning to think about what we're going to do if we go back to a bipolar world. And it's live and relevant today when the Chinese are building what is essentially a shadow nuclear-ready base in Papua New Guinea as we turn our back on Papua New Guinea. You know, that fishing island, mm. that's going to be designed with deep water ports and everything to be, you know, able to take nuclear submarines and, and boats from China. It completely changes the geopolitical balance in the Coral Sea. And where is it? You know, does it turn up in page 35 of the newspaper at the moment? When is the world going to wake up to the long game that China is, is playing? I mean, it's not to say that obviously the COVID strategy was part of their long game, yeah. but it's clear that, you know, they are, they are getting every country under their, um, under their wing, under the financial wing and saying, you now owe us and, and, Every country is jumping to the opportunity because what market wouldn't jump at the chance to have a population like that to sell to? And yet they're blind to any other options. And, and then when China says, I've had enough, and they show their, they flex their arms, we all wave our hands. And, you know, are we really that slow, do you think? Well, it seems to be. We've let, you know, our biggest aid recipient is Papua New Guinea, and we've let them put a fishing port 
on an isolated island that changes the geopolitics of the region if it ever becomes militarized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we know from Djibouti, yeah, that they're playing in Africa, that that's absolutely they're sitting there and saying we want military equivalents in a whole series of ports around the world. Again, we could do a whole podcast just on this topic. I think, Mark, it's, it's incredible. I'm sorry, yeah. It's incredible. So I don't know how much of it's useful, Sam, because we obviously went off, as we so often do, on these tangents. But, <laughs> I think the tangents um, are what I love, though, Mark, and that's why I was so excited when you said yes to uh, to come on and, and do philosophy with me. And, yeah. and you've been so upfront and honest from a personal level, you know, to talk about... Your own family and your own experience there, and, and to give us your own insight into to business and, and the world politics and global politics, it, it all connects and it all connects to the person who you are and, and the way that you think and, and the way that so many of us think. So uh, trust me, there won't be a lot coming out of this chat, I don't think. But I guess one of the questions you said to me when I when we first started, you were sort of like, "Oh, so I, I need to have a philosophy for this?" And I said, "Well, we'll see if we get one by the end of it. If you don't have one already, but..." I feel yeah. like we have come around to, to knowing what your philosophy is. Do, do, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I think so. When I was thinking, just literally, as as you were talking about that, I thought about, and it's not my philosophy, but it was just what I came out with, was that Nietzsche quote about that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, and I don't think that's true, but I think, a focus on resilience rather than success would do us all a huge, huge um, service. of